So Beth, we finally made this happen. I'm super happy to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for the invitation. I've been a fan for a long time. I'm glad to be here. We have two books that are totally diverse and different from one another, which is super cool. Folks, this is Beth Jacino, who is joining me on the show today. And Beth, could you really quickly ground people in who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Beth Jacino. I am a writer. I am an editor. I am a what I call a book publishing consultant. And I'm also... In the last few years, I have become a very unlikely pilgrim, which is to say that when I'm not working in the world of books and with writers, I am likely to be outside, um, putting one foot in front of the other and seeing where I go. And that led me a few years ago to walk a thousand miles on what is called the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James which is a thousand-year-old pilgrimage trail that crisscrosses Europe and ends up in northern Spain. So I think we're going to talk about both of those things today. Yes, absolutely. Why don't we start off a little bit with the publishing, because it is, what is it, it's July 2021. And so we're almost exactly about a year and a half into this interesting experience known as the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've heard a lot of people over the past year and a half who work in the field of publishing, talk about all the effects that they have felt. So what have you noticed in particular has been the effect of the pandemic on this field? Well, I think it's an interesting question because when we talk about publishing, there are such different roles within that, within that realm, right? So yeah. if we talk about writers, people who are, who are actually putting the words on the pages, Writers in general during the pandemic, I mean, there was nothing that was keeping them from their laptops and their computers and from continuing to create. If nothing else, suddenly, you know, some of them definitely came back and said, hey, I have all this free time that I didn't used to have because so many of my other plans canceled. Mm -hmm. And for me as an editor, I have been busier in the last year and a half than I have been in previous years with both new and, pre and earlier clients contacting me and saying, hey, I have a new manuscript. Hey, I have something I want you to read. Hey, look at, you know, I've, I've been working on these things. Right. Now, I don't want to say that that's true of everyone. I also know a lot of writers who the emotional toll mm -hmm. um, has been very stressful. And sometimes it's hard to be creative when, you know, there's a lot of other distractions. There's a lot of, you know, you can you can get kind of caught up in that phrase that has been very popular, doom scrolling. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, you're right. Follow, you know, you get caught up in, in following the Twitter holes down right. whatever piece of bad news is happening. So I think for writers, it's been the best of times, the worst of times. <laughs> From the business side of things, people are reading more than ever. Publishers have consistently reported increasing sales. Mm -hmm. Over the last year and a half, more people are buying books, more people are reading books. Which now um, that if you think about it, if I were chatting with someone over at Netflix, I think mm -hmm. they'd be saying the same thing because you've got a yep. lot of people who are streaming like crazy. They're desperate for the next show because, you know, they're just binge watching. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. There, there were certain. Up. Yeah. There will consumption of things that you could do at home were up. Yes. You know, talk to the travel agents or travel tourism companies talk to anybody in the hotel industry and they're 
you know, their businesses are, are some of what really suffered. Yeah. But from the publishing side of things, and people have really come around to support um, the independent bookstores. You know, a lot of the sales really? that happened to books, a lot of the sales that happened to books were online, but compared to a lot of other small businesses that really rely on foot traffic, if the reports that are coming out of it, and this depends on community, mm-hmm. but I know, especially here in the Seattle area, um, we're such a literary community. We're mm-hmm. such a book-loving community yeah. that people really surrounded their bookstores, and bookstores were very creative in ways that they continued to reach out. I mean, you know, from you can walk, you can, everybody started shipping, everybody started taking online orders. Mm-hmm. My local bookstore, if you lived within a, you know, five to eight mile radius, they would deliver books that you ordered to mm-hmm. you. Um, and it was the bookstore owner himself who was kind of pulling up in his car and saying here. Aww. And so that's all happening. Yeah. The Probably the most disruption that happened was the, within the, the business side of publishing and the people who used who worked in offices, mm-hmm. people who work for publishing companies, people who work for media companies. Um, there have been a lot of problems with physical acts of printing books. Really? That are related. Yeah, that are related to COVID. I got an email this morning from with an update from a client whose book is being printed overseas because it's in color, and the printers have been so backed up. Printers here in the U.S. have been so backed up that Publishers are having a hard time releasing books, getting books printed to oh, release them. Oh, I have not. Oh, my goodness. I have not heard oh, yeah. this. Now I'm going to, like, dive into my little Twitter writing community and say, who's heard <laughs> about this? <laughs> like, who knows wow. that there are printing Oh, yeah, no. Oh. Authors who, have, authors who have, have had books come out in the last year have probably talked to their publishers at some point or self-publishing authors who are trying to get into the queues with self-publishing companies have probably run into. And it makes sense because those printers had to change their staffing. Right. You can't print as many books if you have, if you can't have as many people in the building. Or if you end up with an outbreak and everyone has to stay home for two weeks. We had multiple businesses on the island that would have someone who tested positive and then they just had to completely shut their doors for like two weeks to be on the safe side. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, It has not been, for the writing and publishing side of things, COVID has not been as devastating as it has been for people in other industries. Yeah. By a long shot. Well, and I'm also... But there are definitely challenges to figure out. Oh, yes. Um, Thankfully, the publishing world is actually full of people who are employed in the Resolve Challenge employment. I mean, that's sort of what you do in publishing to a large degree is there's just like all these minuscule little tiny tasks that represent challenges that have to be overcome. So I think you have a a really nice collection of people who probably are up for the challenge in a way, you know, they got the Mm -hmm. gumption for it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to see what happens with with some of the offices that shut down and sent people home. Some of those people didn't just go home and decide, especially the ones that were in New York, some of them didn't keep their apartments. They like they, they're like, well, if I'm online, I'm going to go home and live with my parents or I'm going to go live with my sister or a friend or whatever. And so I've heard a lot of conversation around they've proven that it's possible to be effective and successful in this field from mm-hmm. home. And I mm-hmm. think there's um, a growing sort of um, 
desire to see that as being supported further as as we come out of the pandemic. Um, are you true. hearing anything about that? Um, I'm hearing that from friends and family, both in the industry and just in other in all parts of the area where you know, how much do I really need to be in an office? How much do I really need to commute into a city? How much do I need to live near this building? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's not a clear answer on how that's going to come out yet. Mm -hmm. I think we don't know. We don't know. Um, Publishing, traditional publishing is a very old and very tradition-based business. Mm -hmm. You know, we we have a long history of doing things and it is, sometimes very hard to turn those ships. That's a culture. And so, I think they yeah. like their culture. You know, it's sort of like showing up at some village in Africa and saying, hey, you know, just like stop drinking cow milk. Right. But publishing, <laughs> is also, publishing is, has also never been as geographically centered on New York City as I think some of the impressions are. Oh. Um, and so, you know, if you want to work in publishing, you can live anywhere. You maybe can't work for Random House mm-hmm. as an in-house editor, mm-hmm. but when I was a literary agent, I lived in Denver, Colorado, and I know several agents who have very successful lists who are still based there because it's a great place to live. Yeah. Um, Seattle has a publishing culture. Most mm-hmm. San Francisco has a publishing culture, but also so does, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan mm-hmm. has people. So, you know, I think that there will be people who decide that they don't want to go back to the city, whether that means they can continue to work in those kind of jobs. I don't know. Well, for the young people who are listening right now, I think um, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Like, what was that term you mentioned earlier that had doom in it? Doom scrolling? Doom scrolling, yeah. Um, so there's there's doom scrolling. <laughs> that didn't exist when I was younger. But there's lots of doom and gloom. As and it's not just around a pandemic. You know, it's around climate change. It's around homelessness. It's around population. It's around everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there have been so many hard times in the past. This is not a brand new experience as a young person to grow up where all the older people are freaking out. But I do sometimes feel like the older generations, our generation, and the baby boomers are not necessarily mindful of how powerful an emotional wallop they can have upon youth that are entering their fragile early adult years if all of the adults that are supposed to be the mentors or the ones that we can depend upon, if they're all running around with their hands flailing in the in the wind and, and screaming in circles because they're panicking that the world's going to end in the next 13 years. So mm-hmm. um, for young people, what can you mention about the world of publishing, the world of books, the world of not just being a writer, but all the people who support a writer? What What jobs are there out there in that field that young people who love words might be interested in? I mean, there's such a variety of of pieces. There's definitely editorial positions at different levels in publishing houses, not just the big ones in New York, but, you know, I was teaching a class this weekend about the various types of publishers who are out there, and there are 1,200 small presses scattered all across the country, mm-hmm. and those have staff. 
There are publicity companies if somebody is more interested on the marketing side of things or design is always an issue, is always an opportunity um, mm -hmm. for those who have visual, a visual side of pieces. So, you know, working in publishing, I do think that it is helpful to have the experience because we are this tradition bound. You know, we have a hundred and some years of this is how we've done it. Uh, for people who are just getting started, I know that for me it was incredibly helpful to have in-house jobs at the beginning, right? both to learn the language and the system and also to have the mentoring of exactly what you were just talking about. You know, they're having some of these people who have the experience, have had been around and done these things for a while. I had incredible mentors in my first jobs so that when I went out on my own and I've run my own business. I've been self-employed for 11 years now, mm -hmm. but I did it with that foundation of support and knowledge and networking. This is very, very much a business about who you know, who you've met, who you have connected with. And that doesn't mean you need some fancy degree or it doesn't mean you need some to have gone to some Ivy league school or, you know, have spent a bunch of money. But... Or you don't have to go out to bars and, and schmooze and drink a bunch yeah. of booze with a bunch of people. No. It's just right. putting yourself right. out there and being willing to reach out to right. someone who you have an authentic interest in for some reason and saying hi. Right. Writers are online all the time. We're trying to distract ourselves and procrastinate from working on our manuscripts. So we have <laughs> Facebook groups and Twitter hashtags and whatever the newest, coolest social media you know, Discord or whatever is happening. There's people talking about writing and publishing there. And I've made connections with people who have gone on to endorse my book mm -hmm. entirely online, never met them in real life. Or I've met people, when I was an agent, some of the best writers I met weren't people who came to me with, you know, fancy connections and pedigrees, but they made an effort to go to a writer's conference or an event where someone was sharing and speaking. There's so many programs, both online and in person, where you can meet other writers who are working on the kinds of things that you're doing and learn together. One of the things I love about the writing community is that it is very supportive mm -hmm. because, because readers don't choose between books. Mm -hmm. If somebody is reading a book now, they're going to want to read another book later. And so as writers, we don't think about ourselves as competition. We right. think about ourselves as comparable. You know, if I was making refrigerators, I would have to be in competition with other people who make refrigerators because mm -hmm. then nobody's really going to buy more than one. Mm -hmm. So they have to choose between. Um, with writing, I've seen so much support and so much connection among people who say, you know, oh, you've both from writers who have been published who say, oh, do you need an endorsement? Or yes, you you're writing for the same audience I am. I'd be happy to read your book and give you a blurb, or right. I'd be happy to introduce you to my agent, or I'd be happy to introduce you to my publisher. I mean, in, in, assuming that that relationship is made naturally, right? Yeah, I mean, in, you know, in in life, I think we get young people in this country oftentimes receive a messaging um, that there's this way to get a job and it can be, you know, go get involved with a union and be an apprentice or go to college and get a degree or, you know, there's these, these ways that are presented to them. But in reality, um, 
if you're if you're passionate, interested, curious, and engaged in something and you enjoy it authentically and you reach out to people who are also interested and it's what you spend your time doing because it's what you enjoy, opportunities are going, doors are going to open, windows are going to open, you know, trap doors Mm -hmm. are going to open, you know, attic doors are going to open, the floor is going to fall out from underneath you in a good way. So, you know, it's just just like rather than feeling like, okay, I'm not going to get a good job until the end of a four-year stint at a college, even if you do want to go to college for four years along the way, on the side, be doing what you're interested in and, and just you know, be brave enough, put yourself out there, give things a try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the writing world responds well to authentic interest. I think in, it's, it's a creative, it's a creative world, right? And so yeah. if we're talking not about the people who are getting hired at publishers, but about the people who are writing the book, nobody's going to give you a writing chance or not if you're writing fiction because you have a college degree or don't. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you try to write an academic textbook and go to a university press. Right, 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 right. You know, those are, there are different, there are different, and that's part of it. There's so many different kinds of writing. There's so many different kinds of books Mm -hmm. that part of this, what you're talking about is finding your community. Yeah. Finding the people who are, are exploring the things that you're doing. If you're a mystery writer, find the other mystery writers. You'll learn from them. Mm Mm-hmm. There's no shortcuts, really. You just go out and live your life, and it'll all happen if you're if you're doing what you're interested in. It will come mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Okay. Cool. So um, we have a sense that things have been good in the world of publishing over the past year and a half. That's really nice to know. Um, and then um, I have a sense of sort of how you help people. But I'm wondering if you want to really quickly just sort of explain, you know, who it is that, that you tend to help out. How do you help them? I, I understand you have websites and classes. I think you have a class coming up at Hugo House. What's it titled? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so on July 31st, I am teaching Pitch Your Book so that publishers pay attention, which right. is a half day online. So nobody has to come anywhere physical. It'll all happen on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Chance to think about how to Talk about your work in progress mm-hmm. differently and how to connect and communicate its real strengths and focuses in ways that both publishers and agents would pay attention to, but also readers. Mm-hmm. Well, I know because what you pitch to your agent, a lot of times they take what it is that you're bringing to them and then they use that to pitch it to an editor. And then it can end up in being on the back cover of your book, something that you wrote, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of times people don't think that they're like, I pitch and then the pitch gets crumpled up, thrown in the trash and someone else out there who's brilliant creates a whole bunch of new verbiage. But the truth is, as the writer yourself, a lot of times you know your work the best and if you come up with a great thing about it, it'll get used going forward. Well, and the, I mean, the harder truth of that is that if you don't know how to describe what is compelling about your project, those other people aren't going to read it in the first place. You right. know, think about a book <laughs> in a bookstore. Think about a book in a bookstore. If somebody, you know, is browsing a bookstore and they pick it up, the cover and the title have to appeal to them or they, or else they won't pick it up. Right. And then we have a bunch of research that says the next thing they do is they flip it over. They read the back cover. Mm-hmm. So those 200 words are the reader's first impression. 
And they only open the book to look inside at all if those 200 words are appealing. And they so only if you don't read, have a good pitch. Right, right. But they also only read those 200 words because the cover art and the title yes. was, you know, yes. appealing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And those yeah. are things that are more likely to be flexible and change as as you know, through the publishing process. You as an author are not supposed to design your own book cover. But you do have a lot of influence and sway in how your book is described and mm-hmm. how much do you understand, you know, what is what is the appeal to it, what is appealing about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I know. I know. I, I've, it's been really fun for me having worked on my novel series, which is a four-book series for the past 10 years. And um, it's just been lovely the more I learn over time. I've been sort of what, you know, you have slow food. Call me slow writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just just that time, though. Now I'm really speeding things up. But it was like I just was constantly nibbling and chewing on new ideas. And then I go, oh. And the next revision would be, you know, different. But it's been – rather than being intimidating and scary or giving me a sense that I suck at this – um, the more I learn about how to present my work, the more empowered I feel, the more enthusiastic I feel, um, the more um, my book actually becomes better because I have a mm-hmm. better a better understanding of it myself, even as the writer. Mm-hmm. So, yes, mm-hmm. I would say train up with joy rather than fearing yeah. that you're, you know, going to, yeah. yeah, just go for it. Well, hopefully, right. And hopefully something that you've worked on for 10 years, you're you're excited about it. And so how to pitch is also how to capture what it is that is exciting about it for you. And then what is it that is exciting about it for someone else? And how do you talk about those things? And how do you talk about those things comfortably without sounding like you're reading an index card that tells you the words to say? (laughs) Or, you know, or it gets very long and rambly. Um, You know, the... There's this temptation to, let me tell you all of the backstory. Let me tell you all of the things that I, as a writer, have figured out about these characters. Mm-hmm. When that's that's not the process. And so, you know, we're going to spend half a day on that. Um, writing, teaching classes is definitely something that I love to do. I've been working with, over the years, I work with Seattle Public Libraries, mm-hmm. with Snow Isles, um, with King County Libraries, in teaching you know, introductory classes to writers just to help them understand the publishing process. I always tell people I work with writers who are trying to navigate that complicated space between mm-hmm. first draft and published book. Yeah. And so to answer your earlier question, you know, I'm partly a developmental editor. I read entire manuscripts and provide feedback mm-hmm. to writers as they're in the revision process. And we talk about plots and characters when it's fiction, we talk about structure and need when it's nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I am also, I'm around to help write book proposals and query letters because I have this background in publishing that a lot of people don't have. I teach classes. Recently, I've also been a ghostwriter where I'm actually working with people who have incredible stories to tell, but maybe don't have the, either the time or the, usually it's the time to you know, do what you're doing. Spend 10 years really learning the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. And so, so they bring writing. me in. So it's their story and it's my time and ability to put words on a page. Well, I'm a little curious because I know um, a couple other people who 
are ghost writers. In fact, I'm tr- the woman who wrote the Radium Girls, um, mm-hmm. Kate Moore, I think. I interviewed her two years ago. And um, and that went on to actually be, I think, a, a Netflix um, movie. It's a it, the book, of course. To me, having read the book is just so much more than they can squeeze into, you know, the movie. Right. But mm-hmm. um, that and 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 because it's a movie, they they focus on certain things that I was like, okay, okay, that's so standard. And anyways, it was a brilliant book, and she's amazing. But she also does ghostwriting, and I'm always like, okay, so. Where does, does your name go anywhere on a book if you were a ghostwriter, or is it you're completely behind the scenes? It entirely depends on the agreement that you have. So Got sometimes it. the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. A lot of times you'll see books um, on shelves that are written by, you know, recognizable names, famous people of some way, shape, or form, and it'll be, you know, book by author, and then underneath in smaller font it'll say with person mm. and the with person is usually the person who it's not their content right. but it's their writing time and words they did the bulk that of was it their, and then the that other... was their collaborative yeah, right they, and those are actually usually called collaborative writers but that's mm-hmm. not as well known and so i think we all fall back on ghostwriter and then there are also definitely agreements where as a writer you you agree that your name is never going to be used on the project right yeah, um, yep, that makes sense. And there's the a contract. variety of reasons. Yeah, and there's a variety of reasons why you make either of those decisions, and neither of them is good or bad. No, of um, not. from my yeah. perspective, you know, I am, I'm there to help somebody who already has a story to tell or a message to share, and so it's not my content. Right. So I'm not the writer. I'm the. I help the writer. Yeah. It's sort of like. Um... Um, there's so many people who do this, you know, like um, someone comes along with an idea and then they hire mm-hmm. someone to come in as their project manager. It's my idea mm-hmm. and I want you to manage all these people and these pieces and I want you to bring my idea to fruition. But, right. you know, I'm the person who had the idea and I've hired you as a project manager. I see it as almost similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I've worked with and I've done collaborative work where my name is on the project with a number of, you know, heads of organizations or heads of businesses who has writing talent, who have a lot of skill, but they also have, you know, very, very full schedules. Right. And so having somebody who can come along and invest the time that they can't really mm-hmm. helps as well. Yeah. And so it's, for me, it's a, it's a good balance because editing is a very deconstructive process. Mm-hmm. You're looking at something specifically with the, with the mentality of how can we help make this better and writing is a very con- constructive project, mm-hmm. which is something I learned when I started writing my own books, was I can take an experience and I'm, I'm building it. I'm, I'm adding to it. And so no, if I, I can see. balance yeah, my yeah, own yeah. life. Oh, that's nice. So they really are complements of one another. And so mm-hmm. you don't burn yourself out one direction mm-hmm. or the other. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Well, and that's an important thing when a person creates you know, a job for themselves, whether they're choosing to get hired or actually build the business themselves is, you know, you have to think about, you know, how is this, what's the wear and tear of this, of this mm-hmm. work on me? And if, you know, if I'm doing too much over here, I mean, if you're out in the farm and you're shoveling too much, you're going to hurt your back. Right. You right. know, and, and so, yeah, you have to find like, I need some time in the office managing, you know, our promos for the farmer's right. market or whatever it is, you know, you mix it up. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay. So Beth, let's see here. That is 
the publishing side of your life. And then a few years back, you and your husband, Eric, took a break and you went and did something super amazing and outside of your comfort zone, at least. I'm not sure how much Very it was outside so. of his. Yep. And so tell us a little bit about what gave you the idea. That's what I'm curious about. How did mm-hmm. you get the idea of walking the Camino de Santiago? So in it actually ties back to my working with authors and writing in certain ways. In I forget if it was 2013, 2014, I was working with a writer who was building her own website and, and telling stories and kind of introducing herself to the world. Mm-hmm. And she wrote this article about a, an, exper- an experience she had had in Spain where she had flown to Spain to meet her daughter who had been walking the... what And I had never heard the words Camino de Santiago at that point. Um, but she had been walking this very long pilgrimage trail of hundreds of miles. And my, this writer who I was working with had met her just for the last four or five days. She walked, I think, the last hundred kilometers mm-hmm. and had written about that as an article for her website. And the story was full of rain and mud <laughs> and uphill and blisters. And at the same time, there was something about it that just clicked in my brain because it was also about putting away your phone and putting away your your day-to-day responsibilities and focusing entirely on being present in this piece of history, this thing that had been happening. People have been walking the Camino de Santiago for a thousand years mm-hmm. and along some of the same trails, and you'll see so many of the same historic pieces that is part of that. And... You know, and she talked about gathering with people from around the world who were also doing this at the end of the day and drinking wine and telling stories. And at that point in my life, I was super stressed out, or at least I thought I was. Ten years later in a pandemic and who knows what else, I'm kind of wondering. But I felt (laughs) super stressed out. And I had, you know, I was running my, I had launched the business. I had three different email addresses. I was doing this contract work. I was... You know, I couldn't get from my front door to my car without checking my phone to see if I had missed something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I felt like I was constantly on call. We live in this age where we are tethered to these devices that keep us connected in all of the good ways, but sometimes I think to an extreme. Oh, absolutely. And I was feeling the need for, I was feeling the need to upend something. And if I was in, still in my twenties. I probably would have quit my job, moved to a new city, moved to a new house, something. Mm-hmm. But I'm older now, and so and I realized I like everything about my life. I just need a little break from it. Mm-hmm. And so we did some math, and it took us about a year. Um, Eric and I do not have children, which is probably something that listeners need to understand when I say I'm 30. I was 38 years old, and I took a three-month break from everything. It right, helped. right, right. <laughs> I didn't toss yeah. the kids in the I backyard. Left, <laughs> right. I left, you know, I left a cat at home, but I did not leave kids at home. That was comma, right? Um, yeah, that was comma. My, ger- my geriatric, very evil cat. We flew to Europe, took a train to this rural little part of southern France, put on backpacks that I had bought maybe two weeks before, and started... <laughs> Started walking west, averaging about 12 to 15 miles a day. So totaled out to just over a thousand miles. And we eventually got 
to the city of Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, which is the, where the, the purpose of the pilgrimage itself was to go to Santiago. And then we walked four days farther to a fishing village on the coast of Spain called Finisterre, which translates to the end of the earth or the end of the world. Wow which explains the title of the book, which was Walking to the End of the World. And that, and Finisterre had been a pilgrimage destination for, before Santiago, before the Christian tradition of walking for St. James had even started. Mm-hmm. Finisterre, it was called the end of the world because at that time people thought it was the farthest western point. It was the farthest western point that they knew of. Let's go ahead and first really quick clarify, because you mentioned this in our conversation earlier, that um, the trip, was for the sake of the trip. The trip was yes. was you and your husband and your lives and your balance and and you know this 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 was all about that. It was then, it was a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was only later. Tell us a little bit about what what moment it was when you got back that you suddenly thought, "Oh, I've got something I want to say here." And, and right. you know what, what tell us a little bit about that. Well, because people ask. I mean, when I when you first start telling the people in your life that you're taking three months off and you're leaving and you're going to do this, you know, grand adventure, this trip, this long walking trip. One of the questions I got a lot in the beginning was, oh, are you going to write about it? And my answer was always no, absolutely not. The whole point of this was for me to get away (laughs) from my day job, which I love, but is about writing in books. I needed to not think about how I would describe anything to someone else. I needed to not make my decisions about where I went based on how well, how I would describe it to the world. Right. So I 100% denied both to myself and to everyone else that I was going to write a book about mm-hmm. this experience until I got home. And there were a couple of things that happened when I got home. One was I realized how much I had learned. Before I went, I had been a, like, I researched everything. I read everything I could get my hands on. I was going to, I was and, wondering, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tend to be I did the, no physical, oh, yeah. I'll I figured out when I get I did there. No, I did no physical training whatsoever. Ooh, ouch. Which, is a pro- which was a problem. Oh. But I read a lot of things. Yeah. My husband, by the way, is absolutely the non-planner. I am the planner. So I had read a lot of things, and I realized that I could find guidebooks that would tell me the exact names of the hostels in these towns that I couldn't pronounce Mm -hmm. where I could stay, but I couldn't picture it. I didn't, they weren't descriptive enough for me to understand having not done it, what it was like. Right. Or they were the kind of memoirs that are very much based on a person's emotional journey. Right. Let me tell you about, you know, I set off on this travel so that I could process my mother, my addiction, the loss of a pet, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever they were working through. Yeah. And those so, were great. And yeah, those were like... often beautiful books, but they weren't answering the questions that I had, which mm-hmm. were things like, how do you know where to sleep at night? Or my favorite, where are the bathrooms? Like no one's memoir asked, answered some of the practical questions about <laughs> what does it mean to walk across another country? A you know, couple there, of countries. There... Yeah. And so I realized I had all this knowledge and I wanted to share it for the people who came after me who were going to do this as well. Right. I came back and like most people who have done kind of had a great trip, I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it to anybody who would listen. (laughs) And one of and some of the feedback I kept getting was, 
oh, I could never do that. Oh, I'm not into extreme sports. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me laugh because, I mean, you introduced me by mentioning the kayak, but the reality is is that I am not an extreme sport person. I think that yoga is an extreme sport. <laughs> Before we left, I was not, I did not own a sleeping bag. I did not own the kind of backpack that you put your things in and carry them. Mm-hmm. I thought a hike was a nice stroll around the, you know, three-mile lake in the middle of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this was, this was, to say it was outside your comfort zone is to mm-hmm. def- Fine. I mean, you, they could put you, you know, up as the poster yes. child next to the phrase outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was hilarious in how many people who knew us kind of looked at me and went, you're going to do what now? <laughs> or I imagine Are, some people what? would be like, well, wait, this is Eric's idea, right? Like, you know, because he's a yeah. little bit more into physical well, stuff. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm married. I should mention that I am married to a mountain goat who <laughs> loves to run up and down mountains and at the time was teaching parkour, which is running, jumping, balancing, climbing, and playing, and is very outdoorsy and very fit. Um, it's a hike. It's a walk, but it's also a walk through other cultures. Yeah. And we put ourselves into a country where we didn't speak the language. And what does that mean? Well, it's funny because I was, I have this little note here. I was like, <laughs> you, you know, the book could have been titled, um, Coffee in a bowl and other surprises. <laughs> you know, because I, I just, I guess yeah. I kept laughing. You know, so then I yeah. still don't get Good. that. I don't have a visual. Explain this. You're so. What exactly is in front of you at this at this restaurant place? Or I explain the the scene. So the first the first morning that we were in France, and for most of the mornings after that, but the first morning that we were in France, we had spent the night in a hostel that was run by volunteers and existed for pilgrims, for the people who were going to walk. Mm -hmm. And they provide breakfast. And we came downstairs and it was dark and I was jet lagged and I didn't know what was going on. And Mm -hmm. in front of me at the table, there is a, what anyone in America would consider a cereal bowl Mm -hmm. and a small, like glass, what I would think of as a juice glass. Sure. Yeah. And, the volunteer so thinking, came over orange and the, juice and cereal. And the, <laughs> well, and the volunteer came over and speaks only French. And I speak no French at this point, but very little. <laughs> I can say the apple is red. It didn't help me. And so and so they're standing there with a coffee pot and, you know, in cafe. And I say, we. Oui. And then I look at, I have a cereal bowl and a juice glass. Right. Well, French drink the demitasse coffees, right? And so I kind of take the juice glass and I hold it up for him to fill it, thinking I'll just get refills. Right. And he laughs and says no and pours a cereal bowl full of coffee in front of me. And I look around and I realize everyone is drinking their coffee out of cereal bowls. And they're putting juice in the juice glasses. And then there's, you know, beautiful baguettes of French bread and butter and jam, which is a very traditional French breakfast. And you just put that on the table. There is no plate for no that. No plate. And I went, oh. But the crumbs get all over the table. Oh, it does. And and that's <laughs> but that is your traditional French country breakfast. And oh I my went, goodness. Well, that's not what I expect. Okay. And you know, little things like yeah. that happen. Little things that are not you know, none of them are dramatic. Nothing there's nothing in this book that is, you know, I climbed Mount Everest and my life was threatened. Right. Most of the stories in it are very 
you know, are very gentle. This, it wasn't an extreme trip. Mm-hmm. And I think that was coming back to my original point a long time ago. That was part of why I wrote is because I wanted, I wanted to make it clear that this is something that someone who doesn't consider themselves an extreme sport person could do. Right. If you need to break out of your own routines, if you need that kind of adventure, mm-hmm. you know, it's just walking. You put yeah. one foot in front of the other and you do it. And if that's the only thing you have to do all day, you'll get farther than you thought you would. And you do it day after day after day. And eventually you have created, you have crossed an enormous space, like a country right. or two countries. But it's just walking. The way I look at the world right now is not the way the world is. It is the way I perceive this world at this moment in time, and we are catastrophically different from the millions of other places and times that this planet has had humans on it. And I always do that as just trying to prevent myself from getting a congealed sense of, of this is, you know, the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so yeah. when, I, when I think about what you did for us, when we've gotten so formed to believe that travel should be in a engined vehicle with wheels at a roughly mm-hmm. 45 to 65 mile an hour speed, that is what we tend to think of as norm. And yet what you guys did, humans mm-hmm. on the planet, have always used their feet, one foot in front of right. the other, to get anywhere right. as the norm, as the right. only option. Even bicycles Absolutely. are new. You know, you had wagons mm-hmm. and wheels, yippee, and horses. But that was mm-hmm. it, boats, right. right? And they weren't, and this it wasn't great. done. It wasn't done as sport. I think one of yeah. the interesting things. So we met people from all over the world, and we had all of this time to talk to them and get to know them. And people would ask all the time, "Well, like, why are you here? Why don't you have hiking trails, or don't you have trails in the United States?" And we would try to explain to them, mm. you know, the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, which are beautiful. And very intentionally avoid civilization. Mm -hmm. They intentionally are designed to be sport. They're intentionally designed to be, you know, rustic and and challenging. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, I mean, France is crisscrossed. I walked on one of the ones that has a historic story behind it, but France is crisscrossed with these beautiful, they're called Grand Rondonnet trails, that are established hiking trails that you can walk all over the country. And they, they intentionally send you through towns. They intentionally send you through places where mm-hmm. you can find a bed, find mm-hmm. a grocery store, find a cafe. I did not, my version of hiking involves, you know, three-course dinners with bottles of French wine mm-hmm. and bowls full of coffee for breakfast. <laughs> Fresh, and, warm, steamy you know, baguettes and, out and, of the bakery. And, and yeah. like lunches of French cheese and Spanish sausage. I I did not suffer in the way that I ate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's it's a different it's a different experience because the the idea is the walking is 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 the journey. Mm-hmm. It's the way to slow down. It's the way to you know you're very conscious of the details. Well, and that, I never thought yeah. so much about cows or plants or the things that you're going by. But you can't notice at fifty miles an hour. Exactly. Okay. So when I when I think of your trip, the thing that comes to mind for me a lot of times is slow travel. You know, we have mm-hmm. slow food, we have slow this, you know, all this. I think of slow travel, and so my son, when he did his nine months as a seventeen year old travel thing around the world to 
people that we know. I met him at two different points. I launched him, and then I had to be with him outside of the Schengen region because he was going to be in Europe for longer than the 90-day limit that you're allowed, right. and you have to step out of mm-hmm. the Schengen countries. So he and I mm-hmm. spent a month together. We decided to take a bus from Bulgaria into Macedonia, and then from there down to Albania. And then we were supposed to bus all the way back to um, Skopje and catch a plane from there to Croatia. Well, once we got on that bus, I turned to him, I said, like after a few hours, I said, honey, we're not even going to go back for that plane flight. We're just going to give up on that plane flight. And he looks at me like, why? I was like, this gives us a chance to see so much Mm -hmm. compared to being on a plane for an hour and a half. I don't want to miss it. So you're walking. What Mm -hmm. was it that you found yourself experiencing that you would have missed in any other mode of transport other than walking? I I have a very silly answer to that question (laughs) that I mean wholeheartedly, Mm -hmm. which is that I had never paid that much attention to cows before. I am walking through the field and I am actually making eye contact with the cows as the dirt under my feet. A day where we looked, when we looked and said, the dirt changed colors. Mm. Or we looked and said, oh, you know, there's different kinds of trees here. There's different kinds of plants. Like we're gaining altitude. There's different kinds of plants here. Mm-hmm. We could, I can't think of what the right word for that would be, but, you know. Microclimates. Like, like, microclimates. Yes. Yeah, thanks. That's perfect. In the course of a few days. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would have noticed that. Well, or, or if I don't you think go I through, even if you noticed, it'd be like, oh, look, oh, wow, the, the trees have changed. Poof. Mm-hmm. All over. You know, and it's, right. you're right. And I mean, have you, cows, they, right. you can hear them when they're chewing. Yep. You would never Absolutely. know that driving by. You know, you can, the, the right. sound of their breath as it comes in right. and out of their lungs and, I've always felt less is more because the less that's going on, the more you notice what's actually there. Exactly. We were in towns that, you know, we weren't on the towns that are off the highways. We walked through towns that were most of the people had left. Or we walked Mm. through towns that had a population of like 15 people. Mm. And we slept there. I remember being in this place in basically the Great Plains of Spain and realizing that the buildings are still made out of straw. You know, mud, mud that was mixed with straw. Yeah, um, yeah. This, and there was a woman who I met, and I don't think this story is in the book, but in Spain, and it was her first day of walking, and she was very excited to get started. But she looked around. We were staying in this little town that was kind of an in-between type stop. It wasn't where most people stopped. And she looks out at the red tile roofs and the whitewashed houses of just this little village, and she says, you know, do you think all of this is real or do you think they just built it for the for the tourists, for the Camino people? And I went, <laughs> wow, no, this, is, this is real. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is this is how you got to. I got to see how people really lived as opposed to only seeing, you know, I've spent one day in my entire life. I've spent one day in Paris. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what Paris is like. I've seen right. Notre Dame. I've seen, you know, the Eiffel Tower, but I haven't seen Paris in ways that I feel like I saw things when I was working, walking. Yeah. Well, I have to say, it, I mean, I, this, um, my son and I went hiking in the desert together back in March and it was the desert 
where my dad used to go hiking. So it was sort of like a memorial to him. It was like go to all of his favorite places in a way. And it was amazing to me to suddenly realize if all I had to do in a day was Mm -hmm. walk, you know, I mean, around in my normal life, I'd be like, oh, you know, I walked two miles today. Yay. Good for me. Like I, I squeezed that in, you know, like that's an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But out there, it, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. And the desert, you think the desert's going to just be the same thing going on for like, you know, 30 days of water or whatever. It changed and changed again. And, and I, I had this amazing sense of, of, um, liberation it was just me and my body and we knew the phones didn't work out there so i think we had brought maybe a phone so we could take photos that would help us map because we were trying to figure out where we'd been and, and whatnot but there was such this incredible amazing sense of freedom liberation simplicity and and i was just in awe about how mm-hmm. far i walked every day because that mm-hmm. was just what i was there to do and right. and so i have to say reading your book, hearing your stories, I'm thinking, and of course I love history. I'm like, okay, maybe Camino de Santiago is in my future or one of the many Caminos because I <laughs> I would, would love that. You would love it. You would absolutely love the social aspect of meeting people and spending time in conversation with them, either on the trail or around the dinner tables. Mm. And something else that you just said reminded me of you don't need technology to walk. Mm-hmm. You know, we made, for this particular trip, um, Eric and I made a very specific intention to turn off our phones mm-hmm. for the entire time. And we told people that we would be unreachable. And right. that is a very unusual in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to not be on call. You know, well, what if something goes wrong? Well, what if what if something goes wrong at work? And our answer was, you'll figure it. We trust you to figure it out. Right, right. And, you know, we had we had an emergency backup system. We had a a way for my sister who was house-sitting for us to get in touch with us in case there was a serious emergency. Mm-hmm. But or something happens to we, the cat or something. I mean, yeah, you know. We weren't, yeah, but we weren't checking email to see what was going on with people, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I have to see on Facebook that so-and-so had a baby or so-and-so got engaged or so-and-so... You know, I remember for dinner. Wasn't it like like? Did you not upload any photos until you got home, or was it like? I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I had the. I had. I remember. I was like, oh wait, there's Beth. You know, and it's and you're like, we're back. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you'd even been back for a while. I think you yeah. you got back and settled a bit. And yeah, I mean, and yet, yeah, I took a I took a physical ca- I took a pocket physical camera. So that I did oh. take a lot of photos all the way through because I wanted to be able to remember right. things afterwards. It, the thing about walking through different places every day is that they start to blend together. Mm. Unless, so we were, both Eric and I were journaling regularly. Mm-hmm. Not Again, not because I thought I was going to write a book, but because I would forget where I was last week if I hadn't written it down. Sure, and um, I imagine and we, you had thoughts that came up because you had the space and the time for those thoughts to arise. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's funny, this whole, this, this incredible attachment we have to being constantly in touch, how quickly humans have, have started to adopt that as a, a normal or a necessity. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, 
you know, what do you think life was like when the phone was tethered to your wall in your house? Every time you walked out of your house, no one knew where you were. No one could reach you until you came home again. You know, this was like normal. (laughs) Well, and think about, I mean, think about when Washington State was first settled. Right. And there was such vast open spaces between us and the rest of the country. And, you know, there was no phone. The right. first settlers who came out here, and I mean, Washington's history is certainly not that old, especially American history in Washington. Right. The United States history in Washington yeah. is not that old. Um, but from a communication standpoint, you might get a letter a year or two letters a year from right. your family. Yeah. And, and that was and that was how you communicated. And you might see them again once. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I always think about Deal that with when, it. when um when Carolyn and um. Carolyn Ingalls, Charles Ingalls, you know, Laura Ingalls' mm-hmm. parents. The Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, it's real life, you know. And when they when they left, when they moved west, they said goodbye forever. They were never mm-hmm. planning to go back and see, you know, mom and dad again or something. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was. can you imagine what that would be like? We don't, we don't, uh, our best analogy to that would be someone who's like, I'm going to Mars. And immediately we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, but how are we going to get you back? You know, it's like, right. what if they're not going to come back? What if they're going to go to Mars right. and they can never get get back? I mean, that's we'll something. We'll still video chat you know? every day. I know, I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> With but, an 18-minute yeah, gap. <laughs> when that's not, right. But that's not, but if that can't be the thing, right? And so I think that that was one of the, we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time on that decision. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, but I think it's one of the best things that we did because it gave us, it gave us such an ability to focus on where we were and not be distracted by where we weren't. Yeah. Well, deeply, deeply sad to say we're running out of time and that we're literally actually going to have to stop the interview, which I'm bummed out because this is awesome. I I really hope everyone who, um, there's so many people on my island love to walk. So many of them love to travel. So many of them... Um, have maybe spent their lives working really hard raising their families and want to get out there and and explore. And I know that one of the things that you said you really wanted to get across to people was that this is not an extreme sport and that this is right. something that is completely physically available to like all sorts of people who would think that it wasn't. So if you want to speak to that before we say goodbye. I mean... I think you just summarized it very well. Okay. I have been I've been back to the Camino twice since the experiences that I wrote about in the book. Once was with a friend of mine who was celebrating her 70th birthday. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that surprises people is this is a trip that people take in their 60s and their 70s. I've met people who are in their 80s who are mm-hmm. still walking. Um, because and you know, you adjust your distances, you adjust your speed. But all, most of us have the opportunity to put one foot in front of the other. And that's, and if that's something that you can do, then it's amazing where the world, where in the world you can go. Right. I sound like a Dr. Seuss book, I think. But. <laughs> well, and, and I, I, yeah, I, I feel like, um, I hope, okay, so the book that you were inspired to write after you did this amazing life experience for yourself and your husband is called Walking to the End of the World, A Thousand Miles on the Camino de Santiago. And um, your website is just your name, which is Beth Jusino, which is J-U-S-I-N-O. Is it dot com? 
Mm-hmm. It is dot com. Excellent. So the writers out there, people who are interested in the publishing world, they can check you out about all that. And then um, folks that are post pandemic, especially really ready to get out and, and do some things. You don't have to, you know, um, fly to a bunch of big cities in order to see the world. Sometimes you just do slow travel and you see so much more than you would imagine is even there. Absolutely. All right. Oh, and the author's guide to marketing. We actually didn't talk specifically about this book, but it is, um, it's awesome. I really appreciate it. I took a look at it before you had published it a number of years ago. And, um, it's nice folks for those of you who, um, especially if you're looking at self-publishing, but even if you're not, because authors have a role to play in marketing and getting the word out about their books, regardless of whether it's traditional or self. Um, This is a beautiful book. It's not too big. It's um, to the point. It's not laborious to read. It's very much action-oriented, and I think this was um, a great book as well. So people can find more about this and your classes at your website, correct? Absolutely. All of that is updated in there, yes. Brilliant. Awesome. Great. Beth, thank you so much for calling in and being on the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been fun.